Laura, I'm going to ask you this as calmly as I can. Okay. Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? Oh my god. Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? Oh, you're hurting me. Swear to me, I'm Batman. <laughs> Welcome back to Film is Lit. We are back after a three-month hiatus. Sorry for the wait. We got married. We're back as husband and wife co-hosts now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's not Laura Ceiling. It's Laura Ceiling. Gaylord, welcome back to the pod. Thanks. Now people don't have to ask. They can just refer to me as Ceiling Gaylord. Or just Laura. Or just Laura. <laughs> yeah. And I'm Danny. I'm the film expert. Laura Ceiling Gaylord <laughs> is the literature expert. And this is Film is Lit, the podcast where we compare a piece of literature to its film or television adaptation season seven. We're, we're finally back. Yeah. Weddings um, are a lot of work. So yeah. like we said, we took quite a while to go do that and have our little honeymoon and well, mini moon, mini moon yeah. in Lake Arrowhead, California. Yep. We also got COVID. We did. Which, which is not fun. <laughs> um, went two and a half years without yeah. getting it, but it finally happened. It's only a matter of time, listeners, if you haven't got it. And it sucked, but because we're vaccinated and boosted, it could have been worse. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah, we are back with season seven, coming in hot with a nice mass crowd pleaser with a crowd pleaser yeah you do one for them one for you <laughs> and this is a one for them episode but or you know what where we do dune for everybody yeah. five times sure and then one <laughs> an audience pleaser. yes but we are back covering harry potter and the goblet of fire so this is a full spoilers podcast we're spoiling everything in the book and everything in the movie we're diving deep talking about the details yeah. And what was changed and what was, what was kept the same. Now, this is going to be a fun episode because not only are the Harry Potter books and movies super fun, it's just a, a fun read and watch, but up until Goblet of Fire, the movies were pretty much stayed fairly close to the books. Yeah. Especially Chamber of Secrets, which is basically the entire book. Yeah. And that's the longest movie. And I think... The, that movie was so long that there was kind of a pushback, and Prisoner of Azkaban is one of the shorter yeah. Harry Potter movies at 140 minutes, which is pretty short for the franchise. Goblet of Fire is the second longest movie, and it's the second longest book. Uh, and it was quite a jump. I mean, I guess three is pretty long for a young adult literature novel, but... Between three and five, there's quite a jump in page numbers. Yes. So my audiobook for Prisoner of Azkaban, which we covered on this podcast a few seasons ago, it was 13 hours. Prisoner of Azkaban was 13 hours and change. Goblet of Fire, 20 hours. So almost, yeah. So almost a 50% uh, increase. It's interesting. Yeah. I read an article or an interview with Christopher Columbus, who directed the first two, right? Right. Right. And he said when they were screening the first movie, their first screener was like like two and a half or three hours. I think the, the final cut is like two and a half. So it must have been like three hours. Right. But he said that 
they knew that they had a hit on their hands when he saw all of the kids if they had to take a bathroom break they were like sprinting to the bathroom and then sprinting back because they didn't want to miss anything yeah um it is interesting that this one went long but it's still one of my favorite movies and of the harry potter Mm -hmm. arc and I also think that it does a really good job of, job of cutting stuff out because in my opinion, yes. I actually think the book is bloated. Oh, thank, yeah. thank <laughs> God. Because there is so much in the book that does not have to be in there. I hadn't read this since sixth grade when I saw the movie. Uh-huh. And I had forgotten how much of the book was not the Triwizard Tournament. Yeah. And it took me so long to finish the audiobook, which audiobooks should fly by. I mean, mm-hmm. I, but I simply just could, I was not interested, uh, to be honest, in everything that wasn't the Triwizard Tournament, which maybe is a me thing, but also at the same time, you cannot deny that the book is bloated. And especially, we're not covering Order of the Phoenix, but Order of the Phoenix is oh even longer. Yeah, that's one of my least favorite books and movies. Yeah, same. so much. But do you want to get into our journeys because we're we're touching on it so yes like, why don't you round it out we're on the finish. precipice yeah. yeah god it's been so long since we recorded I, I don't i'm i'm out of shape in yeah. terms of recording but uh i'm gonna dive back in so yeah as i've stated before on the podcast i grew up reading the harry potter books with my mom and with my dad i read the great illustrated classics which um, were the abridged versions of classic novels. We talk about those in the last of the Mohicans episode. Yes. With John and Pat. Yeah. So, but actually, so I read the first three books in the Harry Potter series with my mom. And then by the time I was ready for A Goblet of Fire, I was in fifth grade going into sixth grade. And my mom said, okay, Dan, you're old enough. You're a big boy now. You can read these on your own. And I said, got it. And then, of course, I'm not a reader, so I just never read. (laughs) I never read it. But the benefit of that is that when this movie came out in November 2005, so we were in sixth grade Mm -hmm. at that point, the whole family went, and I didn't know what to expect, which I think was good for me because I I knew it was a tournament, which is the coolest idea, I think, the that she who must not be named, the oh, author. Or as I've written in my notes, J.K. Fuckhead. Yes, <laughs> which will refer to her as one or the other. Um, if you don't know why we're calling her that, uh, Google it. Uh, you know, or this... just don't pay attention to her at all. Right, yeah. <laughs> this is this podcast is a safe space. and we. Um... Anyways, uh, back to the movie. So I had no idea what to expect going in. And it blew my mind in the theater when Voldemort came back. It's a great comeback because Voldemort is in and out of the books and movies, you know, here and there. But this is a great reveal. Yeah. Yeah. I could not believe that Cedric Diggory was killed. Yeah. Great stakes. The whole interaction with actually Voldemort, like, not only being back, but, like, being fully back. Corporeal. Yes. What blew my mind. And then... The twist, the Mad-Eye Moody, Barty Crouch, Junior. That's a lit- Barty Crouch, Junior. Junior. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was a little funny. Um, 
That blew my mind too. So as a sixth grader, I wasn't exposed to too many like dark stories. That's another reason why I like The Incredibles because The Incredibles movie is a very mature take on a kid's movie. And when I watched that, I'd like really appreciate it. And that's what I really appreciate about well, the book, but all, but especially the movie, that whole sequence. Side note, that's also why I like Lemony Snicket. Mm. Very dark, but mature. In, yeah. In a way that YA ingesters of literature can yeah. keep up with it. Yeah. That's an apt comparison for sure. So, yeah, I loved the movie. For years, I had said that this is my favorite. Now, this is the paradox of re-watching a movie a bunch of times, is that the more you you rewatch it, the more flaws you mm-hmm. know, start to notice. Unless and, it's a flawless movie. Right, <laughs> exactly. Call me by your name. <laughs> um, which, unfortunately, Goblet of Fire is not flawless. For sure. I think there are a lot of parts that, even though they cut a lot out of the book, some parts are rushed. There are some uh, cringy moments, like when Harry Potter gets flippers and does the backflip um or the whole like introduction of all the houses and it's just there are some parts that are not handled with the astute directorial finesse of like prisoner of azkaban Mm -hmm. which like that movie is just from a craft standpoint is pretty close to flawless i mean there are some issues here and there but yeah so I think because Goblet of Fire was my favorite for so long, I've rewatched it so many times. And now it, I have to admit, it's not my favorite anymore. Maybe because of excess, but also looking at it through a critical lens, I can't help but knock it a few points. Mm-hmm. So it's now my second favorite. But that being said, I've always loved the concept the most. I mean, yeah. I think this is the best concept that She Who Must Not Be Named came up with tournaments in general like that's why i love the olympics and like a wizard olympics that's like Mm -hmm. the coolest thing ever Mm -hmm. i'm almost jealous that she came up with it so that's my journey i before i forget i want to say one thing and it's that she who must not be named when you go back and reread like you're talking about rewatching the movies you notice a lot of pretty poor writing i don't think that she's the strongest writer she has these incredible ideas and unfortunately, this book is especially where the cracks are really seen because she didn't, whoever was editing these books did not rein her in enough. And what bothers me most about the book and the movie is that what I do want to know is about, the, I think the big Quidditch, Quidditch match in the beginning yes. is fantastic. I love the world building in that. And I love the three trials in the trials of tournament however those are literally maybe with the exception of the quidditch match the world tournament those are the things that she spends the least time during the book on yeah the triwizard tournament trials literally last a handful of pages like harry defeats the dragon in like a page that was the most surprising thing about in the movie it's a whole sequence as it should be yeah in the book it's yeah he just circles around the dragon right it's not like the dragon doesn't break free from this from the chain so i think the most frustrating thing for me is that as much as i think the movie did cut out what should have been i still wish that there was more like like we really don't get 
a lot of development in the maze. Yeah. And if you had cut out some of the other scenes in the movie, you might have been able to develop that. For example, Harry runs into a sphinx that gives him a riddle that he has to solve in the maze. Mm. And, you know, if you think about it from like a technical standpoint, maybe that was going to cost too much money to yeah. develop CGI for to have like a sphinx animal. But those are the kinds of things that I wanted more of. The book skims over stuff and just bloats every single other storyline. Like Ron being mad at Harry. I oh, don't God. fucking care Ron about Ron is such a He's such idiot. a piece of shit. Okay. I don't know if I <laughs> if I got to delve into how much of a piece of shit that Ron is in our episode on Azkaban, but like he's such a fucking piece of shit. I fucking <laughs> hate that guy. Um but like that kind of stuff I don't care about. And then right. there's so much stuff in this book that ends up not having a point there's no resolution there's no like there's so much buildup about ron being angry at harry and then after the first trial of the dragon he's like oh now i believe you no one would actually put their name in the goblet of fire and it's just like okay so there's no payoff to that whole storyline there's a lot of stuff like that bertha jockins oh that there's no payoff to that fucking <laughs> i'm triggered just by that, that name stupid thing okay and then the other thing that really bothers me that there's no payoff about spew is S-P-E-W. Yep. Okay. This is something that disappears after this book and then comes back like one time in book seven just to prove that J.K. Fuckhead didn't forget about it. It's so frustrating. And it's one of those things where the discussion is technically about slavery, but because this is like, there's so much other stuff to talk about, there's not the time to have a thoughtful conversation about it. So the only thing that people... So Hermione's basically this white savior, you know, like, oh, like, you know, I'm going to get all of these elves, like, vacation time and pay. And then every other, every single other person around her is like, the, like, slavery is what elves were made to do. And yeah. they love serving wizards. And I'm just like, that's so problematic. I think a really smart part of the movie is that they cut that entire storyline out because there's not time to have a thoughtful discussion about it. And so therefore yeah. it becomes kind of this, like, token really poor representation about what the, a conversation about slavery should look like. It's very upsetting. <laughs> I I more saw it as just a diversion to yeah. the story of more because it obviously it is, you know, admirable to speak up for the right. um, oppressed. However, it becomes Hermione's whole personality in the first half of the book and yeah. she literally doesn't talk about anything else so it has the adverse effect where you're like hermione like shut up like yeah. i i would i want to have i want elves i like i don't want to hear about elves ever again yeah the reader feels that way and then the people in universe feel that way right. Uh, right yeah it's it's not treated like a thoughtful discussion it becomes kind of a punchline and i think like Hermione's character in this book is probably one of the least interesting the whole time because all she's talking about is SPEW and then she falls for Victor mm -hmm. and then that falls apart and it's just like I don't care about her character in this entire book yeah it's kind of upsetting so anyway I just want to say a couple things that you brought up since I knew I was gonna forget by the time I started awesome talking. so yeah my your journey, journey. Yeah. <laughs> my journey is really similar to yours actually my mom started reading Harry Potter to me when I was really young. Probably not when they came out, because they came, I think they came out in, like, 97, right? The first book came yeah, out in 97. Yeah, and Goblet was 2000, came out. Yeah, so yeah. Goblet came out in 2000. 
this is the one that did become darker and I think that was reflected in the way that my mom started reading it out loud to me mm-hmm. because I started I was old enough to know that she was skipping passages <laughs> like oh. I could tell that she would kind of pause you know and then Cedric took a nap yeah and <laughs> exactly. well so so she didn't get that far with me I noticed that she had skipped some stuff and so at night or something I'd try to figure out what she had skipped and for example, I don't remember her reading the first part with the gameskeeper. Oh, right. Which is a good piece of foreshadowing. That I do actually like how this book opens. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember she skipped that part, so I read it. And then by the time we got, you know, obviously I don't know specifics, but let's just say like 100 pages in, I was like, you know what? I think I can actually read this faster if you don't read it out loud to me. So I just started reading by myself. Now that's my memory of it. If this book did come out in 2000, so we must have been in, in either, you know, kindergarten or first grade, depending on when it landed. Uh, July 2000, so we were... So we were in first grade. Yeah, going into first grade. Going into yeah. first grade. So that's my memory. I don't know if I was reading at this level but at that time, but that's, that's how I remember this was presented to me. So I actually finished the book by myself. My mom did not finish reading it out loud to me. And... Um, you know, I gobbled it up. <laughs> Gobbled it up. Um, I don't remember the first time I watched the movie, but... You see it in theaters? You know, I don't even remember. I couldn't tell you if I saw this in theaters. Probably not, though. I don't, I don't really think I went to a lot of movies in the theaters at that time in my life. But um, I've read this book so many times. And, oh, this is the other thing I was going to mention. So... I've read the book, again, countless times. I've listened to the Jim Dale reading of the book more times than I could even count because his voice is so calming. I just use it to fall asleep a lot. But um, this time I treated myself and I actually listened to the Stephen Fry reading Whoa. of the book because I wanted to do something a little bit different and to kind of get a different take on it. Yeah. And he does a good job. But I think because I'm so used to Jim Dale, I didn't like it as much. I adore Stephen Fry. It's nothing against him. But the thing that was kind of interesting, he doesn't do the, the, uh, he doesn't give every character's voice the spin that Jim Dale does. Mm -hmm. He just does such a good job with that. So Stephen Fry struggled with that a little bit. And then the other thing I didn't like about it was that in every situation where someone was like talking to Harry in his head, like Harry was projecting a, you know, someone's reaction or if, someone was speaking into a loudspeaker or something, his voice would get really echoey. Like, they get, they made it sound like he was actually speaking into a loudspeaker or something, and it was oh. like... <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of weird. Um, so I didn't like it as much, but it was a good... It's always good to yes. try new things, so mm-hmm. that was interesting. Um, and that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, I have a long history with this, but those are my highlights. Cool. Well, where to begin? We can probably go with the more bigger changes. So Dobby is a big character in this, and there's a new elf character named Winky, which is a whole thing um, when Harry runs into the elf uh, Winky at the Quidditch World Cup. Yeah. And Winky is Barty Crouch Sr.'s elf. Elf Yeah, and... That's the first indication when reading this of like, okay, this is not in the book at all. And in the book, sorry, in the movie at all, then it's actually Dobby in the book who gives Harry the gillyweed. Yeah. 
so since there's no elves subplot at all in the movie, which thank God, Smart. yeah, um, they give that to Neville, and there's a good bit. The writer Steve Cloves does that is that Neville is traumatized by Mad Eye Moody's display of the three un- unforgivable spells. So Moody, under the guise of like, hey, curses, but uh, cur- excuse me, uh, <laughs> under the guise of like, come to my office, I, you know, I want to make you feel better. I can show you something. Mm-hmm. But he actually shows him the book of herbology. Yeah, herbology book, and then slow, you know, pushes him to be around Harry at the start of the second challenge, so Harry then can get it. So it makes sense. Barty Crouch slash Mad Eye Moody in disguise. His plan. A little convoluted. That's that's par yeah. for the course yeah. for the author, <laughs> but a little convoluted. But it does make sense. It is a natural change that um, I certainly liked. What I want to just get into right at the top here is the complete character assassination <laughs> of Dumbledore. Now, yeah. <laughs> it it never used to bother me. People, Harry Potter fans, would be like. The Goblet of Fire, for some reason, Dumbledore turns into this raging lunatic. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, it's true. And I'm like, no, what? And I think because I love the movie so much, I would deny, deny, deny. <laughs> Don't we all do that mm-hmm. sometimes? Uh, try I to think c- even in the last episode on Harry Potter, you said that Michael Gambon doesn't bother you. But I'm glad glad you finally jumped into my boat. But, of course, looking at it with this more critical lens, having just read the book, he is, through all the books and through the first three movies, he is such a calm, collected voice of reason who is nothing but poise and confidence. And, you know, Michael Gambon took over for Richard Harris in Prisoner of Azkaban after Richard Harris died. But... I don't know what happened. It definitely is a fault of director Mike Newell, who's the director of this. You know, actors can have their own interpretations, and that's fine, but the director is the boss, Mm -hmm. and it is his or her responsibility to step in Mm -hmm. when a performance is off. Now, I mean, maybe he didn't think the performance was off. Or maybe he directed Michael Gambon to act like that. Right. Well, (laughs) the... um, the famous uh, quotes that Michael Gammon gave, which it, you were going to be triggered. So Gammon has stated that he gave his own interpretation to the character without input from the books, which, quote, he never read yeah, <laughs> as he saw no point in it, unquote. And then as, quote, every part I play is just a variant of my own personality. So... <laughs> Like so, so, it's almost like an Alec Guinness thing. We're like, he's like, you know, I didn't care. I he did a good job with the character. Yeah. But then after he kind of denounced it, and he was like, I fucking, you know, I'm not a Star Wars guy. Or like, I wish <laughs> I wish no one remembered me for that kind of thing. And it's like, like Harrison Ford with Han Solo. Like he hates Han yeah, Solo. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's kind of disappointing to fans when you're when you're like, oh, but it's it is good. Yeah. This one, unfortunately, it kind of hits both of those nerves where you're like. He didn't do the research, and he fucked the character. Yeah. For the next five movies, he fucked that character. I like. I think he's all right in Half Blood Prince, but in this movie, so there's the famous example that everyone points to, which he opened the episode. yes, opened the episode with in the book. Um, it's explicitly said that he oh. asked Harry, "Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire calmly?" I literally marked that right that spot, and then this. Did you notice that it happened a second time? A couple lines of dialogue later 
Madame Maxine gets mad at Harry and, you know, asks, did you ask another student to put your name in there? And Harry says, no. And then, you know, Dumbledore says, it's the same thing. It's literally spelled out. He rebuffed her anger in the calmest way that he could. It's mm -hmm. literally stated twice that he's very calm. He's never angry because he knows there's literally no way that Harry could have done it by himself. So I'm glad that you marked that because I also did the same thing. It's literally stated twice that he was a calm actor in that whole situation. It's such a departure from the previous three movies oh, I that know. I thought as a sixth grader in the movie that, okay, Dumbledore is putting up a show. He clearly knows what's going on and is being aggressive so people notice but that is not the case. That is just Michael Gammon's performance. So, yeah, uh, there's that example. There's also when Harry Potter tells him that he's had some visions and then uh, Dumbledore is alone with the other teachers, like Barty Crouch Sr. has just died, and they're like, are you sure that you want to continue with this? And Dumbledore's just like, yeah, I, I guess. I don't know. And I'm like, what? Like, yeah. Dumbledore, like, this is not the Dumbledore. I mean, I can understand him being unsure of how to proceed, but he has always been nothing but confidence, uh, confident and steadfast. Mm -hmm. And he just he seems very aggressive and bumbling um, well, in the, the movie. Yeah, the whole character of Dumbledore is his quiet confidence. Like, if I had to describe him in two words, it would be quiet confidence. And there's nothing that translates between... Like, it's, it's, like you were saying, it's not an interpretation of the character. It's a complete misread. Yeah. And it's disappointing because you, you get this love for him. Like, for example, at the end of the second movie, when Richard Harris eats the Birdie Box beans mm -hmm. and he gets an earwax one... He plays that moment so well that he might have even gotten a butterscotch flavor, but he might have said earwax just to make Harry laugh. Yeah. He has this kind of... that Like, that is Dumbledore. He enjoys playing dumb mm -hmm. to take advantage of people's expectations to get things done that he has on his agenda. This character doesn't do that. There's no... There's no reserve to him. And, and you don't see that he's able to pull strings for the right side of history or whatever that he's usually trying to do. He's just angry. And he lets that get away from him. And that's just never... I, I just... I can't... And I, I'm sorry. But not to bring up like too much of this, but the freaking... The way that they've spun this world building out with... Fantastic, Fantastic Beasts. Beasts and the Cursed Child. All this fucking stupid shit <laughs> like the, the you know now now i just feel like i just have so much anger toward the tumbledores in the final movies because they're i feel like they're also just trying to like respond to michael gambin's portrayal of him in the fantastic beast movie and like write it so that it becomes canon and it makes sense but it's like it, it just doesn't it's a bad it, whatever I'm, yeah. I'm getting away from the book but i'm just yeah, that's a the, whole the other world, discussion. The world bu building in this franchise is so poor. I mean, it's what's happening to Star Wars now with the yeah. Kenobi show and the uh, Boba Fett show, which yeah. are clearly like retroactive retconning of yeah. the own series. But, but that's a whole other. So hard yeah. because they they have no other choice. It's whatever. Yeah, yeah but I mean. so that's a big con of the movie. But something that works in the movie's favor is cutting the fluff of the book, which. We've said this numerous times on the podcast. Cut the fluff. Movies should be two hours 
Cut the fluff. You know, another good example of this is that I noticed that the opening of the movie yes. begins in chapter six. Hell yeah. Of the book. Love that. We don't need, and you know what they cut out? They cut out the Dursleys. Yes, we which, don't need, thank God, because the first yeah. three books have started with the Dursleys, so we don't need right. don't need that again. We And I think that, again, this is another example of how the cracks in J.K. Buckhead's writing are showing because she keeps going back to the well of like restarting Harry's journey with the Dursleys, but they never come back at the end of the books. So she does this again in book four. She starts at the Dursleys and it's, it's boring. We've been here before. We don't need that back writing and that setup, to be honest. We don't need that setup to understand. Right. All we need to know is that Harry's going to the Triwizard Tournament. And that, that opening of the movie is really exciting it's a great opening it is exciting i love how they get right to it i mean however the biggest buzzkill of the movie is how they tease us with the quidditch and then there's and then they're like they are literally being like oh this is so awesome i can't wait then the match starts immediate cut to wasn't that so awesome i love that and you're like wait a second wait 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 a second yeah (laughs) i if it was awesome i'd want to see that like sure give us two minutes yeah. of the match like have victor crumb do his thing because you've already introduced him mm-hmm. so have him like oh wow then catch the snitch well he literally has a a trick that he does a broomstick yeah play that they talk it's like it's called the fainting no the um it's like the raw the wrongly faint or something like that he literally has a move that they talk about ad nauseum in the book and we never see it on screen like the book does get into some of the quidditch play but i completely agree there's no quidditch match and it's just like why not expand that a little bit more and then yeah i don't know i feel like there's plenty that could be trimmed to give us two minutes of quidditch play yeah that's a bummer but then we get right to the death eaters um attack yeah. on the camp now fun fact we know some footage was cut from this sequence because in the trailer they show the Death Eaters suspending the muggles in right. midair yeah. with that spell and, and torturing them, which is in the book. That is in the trailer for this movie. It is not in the final cut. Though. I'll give them that. That's dark. You know. I mean, yeah, I, I guess. I'll, I'll give. I'll give the cut. Because you'd have to explain like who the people were which, and which the book fucking does. You have this whole sequence of Mr. Weasley trying to get the Muggle money out. This is something that actually bugs me about the Harry Potter world building. It sounds like I, I hate these books. I, I have issues with them. I, I, they are very nostalgic for me. I still love them. But there's this whole thing that wizards don't know how to interact with Muggles that I personally don't buy. I don't like it. I I understand how that could be appropriate for some people, but Mr. Weasley works in the muggle department. Oh, that's true. And he doesn't know how to use muggle money when he's paying the guy for their campsite. Because I've always liked that, how the Weasleys are bad with it. But then... But every... Like, almost all the wizards are bad with it. They don't know how to use money. The campsite owner even says something like, oh, like, there are a bunch of people who, like, are all of you foreigners? Because nobody knows how to use money around here. But, but, but wait, but to bolster my argument that this is stupid, wizards also have to take muggle studies at Hogwarts. Right. So, like, the... like. It, it, it's kind of one of those working theories that I have as an adult because I have read these books so many times. It's like, what do they learn in their classes other than potions and defense against the dark arts? Because those are the things we always hear about. But like muggle studies, wouldn't it be fun if we had like, 
What, yeah. what would be the first thing that you learn in that class? You would learn to live in the muggle world. Yeah. And so you'd learn how to use money. And you'd learn how to like... Telephones. Use a telephone. That's another scene in this fucking book. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, um, like, Mrs. Weasley can't use a fucking telephone. And I'm just like, you would need to know, it, no matter how insulated you are in the wizarding world, you would need to know how to interact with muggles. And that's where you would learn it, is muggle studies at Hogwarts. I'm glad the end. Yeah, that they cut that scene in the movie because... When I first saw the movie, I'm like, oh, um, the World Cup is being held in a secret wizard field that no muggle can access. Mm-hmm. But then in the book, you learn that, no, this is like a public field that the muggles are being tricked. But they're like, the muggles are right there and they run the park. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, wait a second. Are the muggle? Do the muggles know? Or it just felt very. I was confused by that part. It's just there's just some inconsistency in world building. I think. I think, uh, I think J.K. Rowling, um, whatever, like she wants to eat her cake and have it too, because there's a lot of stuff that's just like, oh, wizards don't know how to work in the muggle world, but also in book five, what's the opening? The minister of magic has right. direct access to the British PM. So You're it's right. like, it's like, there's not, I love the wizarding world building and I love that they don't need to like live in the muggle world to exist. But I just, that, those kinds of inconsistencies of just like, really, they don't know how to use money. Like that's fucking dumb. That doesn't like. I guess that I've never thought about it until you just reminded me about Mr. Weasley's profession. I think about these things. <laughs> We think about these things so you don't have to, listeners. Yeah. We ruin that's, that's, we ruin everything you love. That's a nicer uh, way of not calling me a uh, a nerd. True, <laughs> aren't we all? But then the movie just keeps on going. So yeah. we have the attack on the camp, which is like very quick, but it's well done. Yeah, and, and it's pretty scary. Yeah, and and we get the the dark mark. And we that's... see we see Barty Crouch in the movie, which mm-hmm. in the book Harry doesn't see the face. Right. Or at least he sees it in his dream, but he doesn't know who it is. Yes. Right. Um, so we get that whole ordeal. Then we're like, boom, right to Hogwarts. Where I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah. And then again, which is a common theme in the book, there's a whole nother passage of stuff before we get to the arrival of the other schools for the Triwizard Tournament. So in the book, everyone puts their names in uh, on Halloween. Yeah. On the goblet. But Which is fun, you know. I, I guess. Stylistically, for your imagination, it's fun. But. but the movie would seem to suggest that they just, like, at the start of the year, the schools come in, and then you, you put your names in, and then go, go, go. Which is funny, because the movie is supposed to take place over school year, but there is surprisingly very little schooling for a movie that takes place in school. <laughs> um, and it couldn't... Like, your sense of time isn't off. Where in the book, it's very meticulous, so you know which month you're in. You know which day you're in, practically. Well, you know you know who does that really well? Who? Remember the third book we talked about, The Seasons Changing? Yes, Alfonso Cuaron. Alfonso Cuaron. He does it really well, where we don't see the classes changing, and we don't have a discussion about it. We just see a tree in in between certain seasons. Each season. Each yeah, season. what a so great just, framing device. Exactly. That's yeah. another way, because... These books are, and and understandably, are built around the the, the terms, the yes. school terms. But we don't need to have ourselves walked through it every single book. And I think that's mm-hmm. another stumbling point for the book. It just got bloated. She yes. just she harped on it yeah. for too long, and that's not that's it's just not the that's not what's interesting about this book. <laughs> yeah, 
So <laughs> we get to the introduction of uh, Bobaton and Durmstrang. Or as Dumbledore says in the movie, Bobatton, but the... <laughs> Bobatton. Yeah, it's... Oh my god. It's, like, it's by Sam Demas down by Long Beach. Um, <laughs> Sam Demas is in here. I, I know. We don't have... I'm just... <laughs> anyways. Well, you can say it again. Sorry. No. <laughs> this is an instance where, okay, this wasn't handled right. In my When I saw it as a kid, loved it. But now watching it as an adult, I'm like, that's a little weird. So we have the introduction of uh, Bobaton, which in the book, it's a co-ed class, but the movie is just uh, women. So it seems to suggest that... Oh, I guess I didn't think about... Yeah. I didn't notice that in the book it was co-ed. Because it actually annoyed me. It always annoys me that it's like, oh, there's only like... There's yeah. like a separate... The Bobaton is girls. <laughs> Durmstrang is boys. Which is the only reason that a woman could be chosen if it's an all-girl school, right? Because there right. are no women chosen for Hogwarts. Right. Anyways. True. Sexist. The goblet's sexist. That always bothers me. Um, so the, there's only like 12 um, of the Bobaton girls who come in, but they do their little, I'd like to say, feminine faint oh, curtsy, <laughs> where they go... <sighs> yeah, and they and there's like fucking birds flying around their hats. And they brought a Cirque du Soleil backflipper to do a little presentation. I'm like, is she part of the school? Or um, <laughs> they just hired her for the night? Is she a student? Is she gonna have to stay at Hogwarts for the whole year? She's just dancing in the in the grand hall though. Right. So the they had that little entrance, and then it ends with the shot on Floor, which is like obviously she's gonna be the one who's picked, uh, and then. And then even funnier, they have the Durmstrang boys come in with the motion blur on their little <laughs> staffs, which looks horrible, yeah, look um, and going, oh, 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 oh. I bet the direction was like, be as like masculine, be the opposite of what we just saw yeah. with the with the Fleur, with yeah. the uh, Bobaton girls. So I, I'll just add a detail that I like. I, I really appreciate this tiny detail. When they strike their staves on the ground, sparks fly up, and the staff leaves an ash ring where they strike the ground. And I've always loved that detail. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It, it, it kind of gives it a little bit more of a, like, oh, this is actually happening. Like, there's actually fire under there. You know what I yeah. mean? I, I, I love that detail. But, like, but was anyway. their goal to, like, scare every? I mean, I guess it's kind Intimidate, of... Intimidate, yeah. Well... I don't know. I, I just think it's a little silly. Maybe it's just too much of a reduction of personalities. Like Right. It's it's like, well, Durmstrang is scary. And the, bo- the people that go to Bobaton are French, so they're all like fainting yeah. beauties. <laughs> like yeah. and, oh and, and um Durmstrang I think is supposed to be in Germany, so it's like they're oh. all they're all, you know, super. Oh, I thought masculine. it was like Eastern Europe, like something like So there's actually a conversation in the book that they like Hermione's like, well, of course nobody knows where the other schools are. It's like oh. Hogwarts, and, and she explains that they're in like in like northern. Well, Germany. the movie is like they're Russian. Russian, yeah, or like Romanian, yeah. So, but whatever. Especially with Korkorov's uh, accent. Oh yeah, you're right. They and they um even like Victor Crumb is very Russian. So I, maybe Hermione is wrong. To me, she's suggesting that it, they're from Germany, but they're very oh. clearly from Russia. Just even depend. Well, I don't think Hermione's wrong. I just think the direct. I just think they chose Russia for the movie. But Victor Crumb is the name of the movie, and I and Igor Karkarov, like that. 
also was Russian. So, like, so, even on, on its yeah. face, I feel like Hermione's <laughs> wrong. <laughs> okay, you're, you're right. <laughs> See, I told you she's a fucking idiot in this book. She's, yeah. <laughs> she just completely stops being smart. Um, and then, so, we get to the drawing of the names, which is very well done. I love the... How- very close to the, the book. The age line is really fun. I love that they kept mm-hmm. uh, Fred and George getting the... The long beards. Harry Potter's name is drawn. I love that moment of silence with Michael Gambon. He's like, Harry Potter. Harry Potter. (laughs) And he just comes and just gives him the note. I think that is brilliantly done. We have the aforementioned, did you put your name in the goblet of fire? A scene which will forever scar this movie. Uh, It doesn't even make sense in context. It it really doesn't. Um, I have something to piggyback on your... Go ahead. Um, Do it. And you might be, you know, I might be stepping on your toes here, but something else that's always bothered me about the book and the movie. Why does Harry have to compete? Oh, I love that. <laughs> How everyone is just like... It's, like, it's, it's a binding magical contract, dude. You're in, dude. Like, yeah. your name came out of the goblet. You're in, dude. You're, like, I'm gonna... What's going to happen if, like, is the... There's no discussion... Other than the fact that it's a binding magical contract, if your yes. name comes out of the goblet of fire, and and they're just like, yeah, dude, like, sorry, sorry, dude, you're, <laughs> you're in it. Yeah, but it's like, didn't you make rules that like kids under seventeen could die yeah. and have died? They're so, like, yeah, but he's in. <laughs> <laughs> so like, <laughs> what I wrote in my notes is the basis for HP to participate in the Triwizard Tournament is thin. Tenuous at best. Yes, very tenuous. Um, that's, that's from Ian Fleming. Yeah, so who is very British, like this movie. Tenuous at best. Yeah, so he. So that's always bugged me. That's just one of those plot holes where it's like it's one of those I don't know like true movie trailer things where it's just like Harry can't participate. He's under seventeen. Roll credits. Yeah. <laughs> like the, uh, there, there should have been some discussion. Like J.K. Rowling sets up magic. In book five, with the unbreakable vow, where if you break the vow, oh, and and there, the, another example is the um, the truth keeper spell that where you basically like it's oh, such the a serum. No, no, no. When um, like Peter Pettigrew was the yes. secret keeper for the Potters, gotcha. but then he told Voldemort there are there's clearly magic that something terrible could happen to you if you break the spell. So in this, like, there should have been some kind of discussion about, like, oh, like, Harry's going to die if he doesn't participate or something. Like, like there should have been some stakes yeah. raised at some point where it's like, well, you know, like, what does he have to go to, like, Azkaban for a while if he says no? Like, he could just opt out. Right. So anyway, that, that's always bothered me. Tenuous at best, end of discussion. Yeah, a we frustrating part of the book is how everyone keeps claiming that Harry Potter put his name in somehow and Harry Potter says ad nauseum that I didn't do it. Yeah. That's a big reason why Ron is mad at Harry. Yeah, which is so dumb. Which only lasts for a short while in the movie. Lasts for um, about a third of the book. Very tough to get through that part just because you know that you know that Harry didn't put his name in. So you want to move on from there. And you'd think as best friends, Ron would trust Harry. Like, yeah. there is at least a discussion in the book where, when Hermione, and Harry's a dumbass too. He's like, why is Ron mad at me? Yeah. And Hermione's <laughs> like, because you're the fucking chosen one and he's got 700 other siblings to compete with and he never wins. Like, give him a fucking break. You know, mm-hmm. like, at least there's a discussion about why he might be mad and Harry's like, oh, I guess that makes sense. Right. And I'm like, sometimes you're so dumb. So we get 
to the first challenge, which is the egg retrieval. Retrieval, yeah. Against which is the dragon. in the movie. Yeah, I love so that they extended that. This is a case of green screen and VFX that does hold up. It really does. In stark contrast to the second challenge, which we'll get to. So the first challenge, absolutely thrilling. As stated before, in the books, Harry Potter does a few twirls around the dragon with his broomstick and then completes the mission. And, and I want to say, budget-wise and plotline-wise, it's actually pretty thrilling that Harry does not, that not only Harry, but the audience does not see the other two compete. Yes, three. Three. Yeah. The other three compete because... Really what it is, is budget saving, because mm-hmm. you don't have to CGI the dragon the whole time. Yeah. But it's also, it raises the stakes, because you have no idea, and you hear the like the, the fire blasts, and people screaming and gasping, so it's like, you know that you're going through what Harry's going through. I yeah. love that. That was very smart. And an example of, yes, economic screenwriting. So in Screenwriting 101, that I took sophomore year of college... You end a scene as soon as you can, which is kind of the rule of thumb. As soon as a piece of information is delivered that is the point of the scene, cut it. Mm-hmm. So in the movie, before the match, Harry is talking to Moody saying like, I don't know how I'm going to beat this dragon, which it's like, Harry, how have you not figured out this yet? The other oh, three contestants have. Yeah. And then Mad-Eye Moody says like, like, what are you good at? And Harry's like, I'm a good, I mean, I can fly, which like, Obviously, you've been the star seeker for three years. So in the movie, he says, well, you know, Harry's like, I can't bring a broom. Then Maddie Moody says, you can bring a wand. Cut. Cut. That's such a good point. Perfect. Which as an audience member, you can go, oh, Harry's going to bring a wand to get the broom. The example of the bloat that we've been talking about is then in the book, Harry and Moody have a conversation about how to make the broom appear with the wand. And it goes on. And then he practices Asio wand for a goddamn week. <laughs> so this, for a goddamn week. This is exactly what we're talking about with cutting the fluff, yeah. which is as soon as the point is made, cut it. Which the movie does expertly to, to a point. Yeah. Some points are extremely rushed, like Barty Crouch's uh, senior's murder. Which in the he's movie... Not, yeah, he's not murdered. He's... Well... In the movie, he uh, is implied that he is by... Oh, okay. Keep talking. Cause I, yeah. So that is... We're given so little information in the movie about his murder, and they don't even address it after the scene happens, yeah. that it seems a little weird, and clearly there's some information that we should have received. But, yeah. So we get right to the dragon match... It's thrilling that we don't see the other competitors. Although, when I first saw it, I'm like, are they not going to show us this like they didn't show us the Quidditch match? Thankfully, they they didn't. Thrilling sequence. Looks great still to this day. And after then is when Harry gets the egg and we have the whole middle portion of the movie, which is him solving the riddle of the egg. And with, then also... With Moaning Myrtle. Yes. Which is so fun. I love that we get to see Always her Always great to see her back. <laughs> Always great to see you, Myrtle. (laughs) Uh, Don't stay too long, though. And then the Christmas Yule Ball. Yeah, this is fun. I love the scene in which McGonagall (laughs) teaches everybody how to dance. And on your wrist. Yeah. (laughs) Wrist. Yeah. Um, Yeah, very fun. And then the Yule Ball is very fun. This is something I wanted to talk about a little bit 
in regards to the stylistic changes between movies because the directors totally change. Yes. So this one is really interesting because I think Mike Newell really wanted to introduce a level of normalcy, almost like blending the muggle world and the wizarding world yeah. more seamlessly. And I kind of love that he gives the teenagers breathing space to be teenagers. Yes. So at the Yule Ball, instead of having this high-minded classical style, that honestly, the score by Patrick Doyle is wonderful. Yeah, and um, this is the first score not done by John, John Williams. John Williams, right. Yeah. It's, I gotta be honest, it's not the best. I mean, But he's not yeah. John Williams. He's no one's John Williams, um, yeah. Who, by the way, is still doing like live conducting shows. He's 90 years old this year. I just Jesus. read, I read an article. He just composed a new symphony this year. And he's like he's like touring with it, and he still he still conducts at the Hollywood Bowl. He's incredible. Anyway, Legend. he turned ninety this year, so I was reading about him earlier in Variety. Um, anyway, <laughs> I love the score, but the the other thing kind of that bothers me sometimes about J.K. Rowling's writing about having about wanting to have her cake and eat it too. It's like there's this high mindedness among wizards, like you know they that kind of goes back to this kind of antiquated mindset you know they still use watches and you know this kind of thing which is quaint it's quaint Mm -hmm. but it's kind of it doesn't work for teenagers you know what i mean and so i love that at the yule ball they're they're very hormonal you know harry and ron are sitting off at the side because they didn't get to take the dates that they wanted to take Right. And their two dates are upset at their attitude, rightfully so. Which you would think Harry Potter is Harry Potter. You think he could go up to any girl in that school. I know, but and, he wanted Cho. Uh, uh, yes. That, so he didn't get to go to the, with the one that he wanted to. So I understand his hormonal, you know. And honestly, like, he's not that popular. He's never been Which, uh, which is a, a flaw of the books because he is, he's the most famous person right. in England uh, so well, okay, but that's an interesting conversation. Or right? in the wizarding world, he's popular in the adult world because I think they understand the stakes. I think his peers are too young to understand, and so th- I think they probably have more of that. Like, can we stop talking about Harry Potter now? Because mm. they don't, they didn't good live point. through the Voldemort years, right? So I, I think that that difference is actually that's a good point a mature if, if everyone was like fangirling over harry potter i feel like it wouldn't be the same story. you check anyway. you checkmated me i got it let's move <laughs> I on take, i do too much thinking about <laughs> harry potter but anyway um i like how hormonal the dance is because it's yeah. really accurate to how teenagers act and, and then they've got this amazing moment with radiohead's lead singer himself, Johnny Greenwood, and also one of our favorite contemporary composers. And he's the star of, and I want to be very clear about this, he's the star of a rock band, but we're not spelling rock, R-O-C-K. We're spelling it W-R-O-C-K because there's a genre, there's a subgenre of music called Wizarding Rock, W-R-O-C-K, that I was deep into when I was in high school. And there are literally bands that only exist to sing about Harry Potter themes. Uh, I mean, <laughs> and one why of not? my favorite things about this movie is that they gave me an actual Wizarding Rock song to add into my iTunes playlist that was actually from the world of Harry Potter, rather than being like something from our universe that just sings about like Fred and George. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I loved this about this. And I, I love how they're screaming and they're all like huge fans of this rock band. Yeah. It, it, it gives them such a, like, oh, these are adolescents. It does seem out of universe at first, but it, it does fit in to be like, yeah, these are kids and this is a, a dance. Yeah. And, and I think it speaks to Mike Newell's style or his take on the wizarding world. I think that he has that interesting blend that's more realistic to a world that's been around since, you know, day one of mm-hmm. history that you they would have incorporated the muggle world a little bit more seamlessly because they are human. Yeah. They're not really a different race. I, I just think it's interesting that he chose to go in that direction. Agreed. I also, I feel, I don't want the Radiohead heads to come after us. Tom York is the, oh, is right. the lead singer. You're right. You're right. But Johnny Greenwood is now uh, still in Radiohead, but is also an Oscar-nominated composer. Who is, Phantom Thread. Yeah, Phantom Thread, among others. Power of the Dog. Yeah. Spencer. Mm-hmm. You Were Never Really Here. He is just an incredible composer. One of our favorites next to Nicholas Bertel and John Williams. Mm-hmm. So... It's super cool to see him just... Just rock out. Yeah, just rock out. You're like, yeah, Johnny Greenwood. And he'll forever be a part of this franchise. I don't know if his character gets a name. I should have looked him up on IMDb. The band band is the Weird Sisters. Um, That's right. Yeah. But I don't know if he got, like, a character name. Yeah, Weird Sisters (laughs) member. Lead singer, yeah. yeah. Um, Anyway, (laughs) I just like... I like that, that style decision. Same. All right. And we were on the cusp of puberty as well, so I think we were also... It was very relatable to see these characters absolutely lose their mind when a member of the opposite sex would walk down the hallway. I mean, that's kind of like how it was to be not not comfortable in your own skin and just to be like, what's happening to me? Yeah. I'm So yeah. it hits home in that regard, um, yeah. both the book and the movie. Yeah, this is the first time that we get the um, the Cho Chang um, storyline with Harry Potter. They start to get crushes on each other. I don't think that that's quite talked about as much in the first three books, but then as we go on, we get like the the dating kind of scene. That's that the seeds are sown Which... in book four that they start crushing on each other. Oh, and I have such a fun fact about this. I forgot. Okay, Shoot. I actually worked with someone who auditioned for this role at my last job. Isn't that so cool? She was living in London at the time, and there was a casting call for this character. Very cool. And she cool. went and auditioned and uh, didn't get it, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> so the ball happens. It takes freaking forever in the book. Yeah. Now, the second challenge, mermaids. A cool challenge. Another really cool, You ha- there are a couple steps to the challenge. You had to figure out the egg. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a pretty cool challenge. In the book, I would say, this is, there are a few instances of terrible green screen yeah. effects or CGI in the movie, which have not hold up, which Azkaban holds up, and that was made a year before. So there's really no excuse for this Victor stuff. Victor Crumb's shark head. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, speaking of Victor Crumb, there's, before the ball, there's a scene in the movie um, before Crumb has courted Hermione, which a little uncomfortable because he would have been a senior and she would have been a freshman, so it's kind of a little yeah, bit like... He's also on the national Quidditch team, the, which is The age strange. gap is a little... It speaks to... It's like, well... Yeah, it's not like a licorice pizza thing where it's like more about like 
the friendship bond between them. It's it's uh, more of again like you want to eat your cake and have it too because it's like he's on the Quidditch team, but also he's seventeen or eighteen or whatever he is. And yeah. He's in Hogwarts. Right. Oh yeah, that it's doesn't really. Like, yeah, is he, do, is he yeah. doing both school and the that, professional? See, that's another thing that bothers me, but I think about these things too much. So, so yeah, there's a scene earlier on when Hermione and Ron, Harry are on the beach talking, and then uh, Victor Crumb walks by. He, what is he, power, yeah. power walking? And then a bunch of yeah. girls are walking after him. Giggling and following him. But he's walking, which is clearly in front of a green screen. I'm like, they shot that in the studio. Like, yeah. they couldn't go back to the lake you know, where they shoot all the exteriors to just shoot this one scene. So it was a little bit lazy. Same with the mermaid sequence. I mean, Daniel Radcliffe shot for hours in, in the big water tank in Warner Brothers, which, you know, I'm sure it was super difficult. However, the mermaids don't hold up. The part where he gains the flippers and does the backflip and says, Wahoo. I know. Cringe. Ugh. Um Oh my god, and then what's his fucking <laughs> Neville goes, Oh my god, I've killed Harry Potter! It's like, okay. Also, <laughs> of cringe. The, I like how the movie adds the docks and the big the piers yeah. on the water. In the book, they just walk into the lake, and yeah. it's like, okay. Um, Here, here's <laughs> another thing that bugs me. Um, Fleur is basically just like, you see her dive into the water, and then there's nothing, and then she's failed. You never see her any of the yeah. footage of her struggling with. Floor fails <laughs> after the, especially in the movie, after the dra- the first challenge. Yeah. She could have not done worse. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's an example of like let's throw in a girl because we need representation instead of let's actually develop a character. Because women can be interesting characters. <laughs> Apparently, like, women can't do the tournament. Um, well, yeah, <laughs> they should have just had a you know nothing under seventeen, and also no women. Right. <laughs> Might as well have had that. Role I support there too. that. Uh, she does. She loses every single challenge. Like she embarrassingly, even, like, she, she like does up. so bad. But yeah, the um, second challenge doesn't doesn't look good. And then afterwards, Dumbledore is like, and for character. Uh, outstanding character, uh, moral fiber, Harry Potter uh, gets 40 points or whatever. And it's like, wait a second, Dumbledore is the host. Shouldn't Barty Crouch be, or whoever, um, oh, Little Bagman, who is completely cut from the movie. That's another character who we didn't even... uh, So in the book, there's a whole subplot where Little Bagman is betting for Harry to win. Uh, so he can get, you know, uh, the winnings at, at the end of the whole tournament and beat, you know, and he's corrupt and all this stuff, completely ex- excised from the movie. Rightfully so. So it, it kind of seems rigged for Dumbledore to award Harry Potter those points. When Harry he, Potter? Yeah, when he's the host, you know, you know what I'm saying? I, yeah, 100%. And it's also like... You know, they award the points to Harry because, quote-unquote, he didn't know that they weren't actually in danger. And it's like, really, though? Like, you re- they, like Harry Potter couldn't figure out that maybe they were under an enchantment that made them safe underwater? I like, mean, that's kind of like, come yeah. on, come on, come on. So, so, also, it's funny how the second challenge was was had spectators when they just jumped in the water and you couldn't see anything. I know. That's oh, a that little... is funny. I <laughs> 
imagine at the they're whole. Just, they're just like sitting around for an hour and a half. And then yeah, they come up. Hey, so it's like you so cheer you're originally up. Originally from Vermont, or yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So second. <laughs> that's so dumb. Um, yeah, that's something. It just doesn't hold up really well. So I'm not a fan of the second challenge. It it. it uh... That's that's fair. I mean, I I think it's kind of cool that their wands work underwater, but the bubbles come out instead of like energy w- ripples. You know. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's fun. I, I think it's fun, but yeah. it's flawed. <laughs> um, fun and flawed. Yeah. Now we get to Harry Potter discovering the pensive, which, which is such a fucking bit of lazy writing. They leave the room, and then he bumps into a cabinet, and it falls open. Yes. And speaking of the Kenobi show, so this is something you should never do in screenwriting. If you want a character to learn a piece of information, you should never have another character either drop that piece of information on the ground or to have it just open, lying for the other. Mm -hmm. Like, if it's important the characters should treat it so. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened in the Obi-Wan show. I'm not going to spoil anything. But a character has a device that is important mm-hmm. and has information on it. And then they drop that when they're leaving. And then this one of the um, Inquisitors finds it. And then, then that leads into the next episode. Uh-huh. And that's like a whole thing, which is you can see the writers be like, okay, how are the Inquisitors going to learn about this device yeah. and then so in in the book's case it's like how is harry potter going to learn about barty crouch so it makes sense for the reader later on when moody turns into barty crouch yeah it's really lazy and you know another thing about unbelievable ways that characters gain information it's just unbelievable that the literal headmaster of the school and the minister of magic mm-hmm. would leave his office to finish their conversation leaving harry alone rather than just being like oh harry let us finish just like wait a second yeah (laughs) let us finish our conversation and then these people will leave and then i will grant you an audience yeah and it's 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 so dumb too because doesn't harry go to report that barty crouch is at least incapacitated in the woods but then that's not the first thing that comes out of Harry's mouth. It's like, okay, chill. I'll just stay here and eat a bunch of licorice snaps mm-hmm. and bump into the pensive. But Careful, I'm not Harry. Gonna, but they I'm, bite. Yeah, they're a bit sharp, yeah. actually, is what he says. Oh, damn. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, but he doesn't give them that piece of pretty critical information. He just chills in the in the office that they left him alone in mm-hmm. to then fall into the pensive. So... None of that really makes sense, but anyway, right? We've we've I've found myself in the weeds, in the gilly weeds, if you will. Yeah, amen. <laughs> so in the book, we Harry sees two trials: the one of Korkorov and the one of Barty Crouch. Yeah. The movie smartly cutting the fluff. Yes. Combines those. Yes. Where Korkorov gives the information of Barty Crouch, and he gets t- tackled. Hello, father. Yeah. <laughs> he does this little tongue thing, but all respect goes to David Tennant. Freaking love him. Love David Tennant. Hadn't haven't seen him in a lot of things. You but... haven't seen Doctor Who, uh, right? Um, yeah. And I never will. But no, I, no, I don't his know. His series is worth watching. Some of the other ones are not worth watching, but his series is is good. Yeah. So, uh, he is... <laughs> he's, he's in a lot of great stuff. Oh, yeah. Broadchurch. He's great in Broad that. Broadchurch. Right. 
He's great in that. He's great in um, a retelling of Hamlet that I had to watch for high school. He records a lot of Shakespeare stuff. Remember, he was the uh, he was the oh Honor Majesty gatekeeper. Oh, he reads Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but he's also in Macbeth. Mm-hmm. That I listen to anyway. Yeah, he's in a lot of stuff. So he is quite the little gem, and there's a great moment of unintentional humor when uh, Korkrov does the the mic drop of Barty Crouch beat junior junior and, and then barty crouch is like oh shit <laughs> he gets tackled <laughs> oh, shit. you know he's trying to sneak out the back <laughs> and they couldn't have made it more obvious to the audience when mad eye moody does the tongue lick uh yeah. earlier yeah. which well actually i say that but it, it tricked it i mean as a sixth grader i didn't know it but that was more because there was so much plot with that barty crouch subplot that I couldn't really figure out. I couldn't keep along with it. So the book is too much with that. The movie is too little. I think a, a happy medium with that storyline. Because in the book, there's a whole subplot exposition dump yeah. of how Barty Crouch escapes um, Azkaban. We could do the whole polyjuice so potion with his mom and how he, he switches. And yeah. it's like... Oh, God. That was so unnecessary. And then how would he stay that way? Oh, and this is a change. So in the book, Barty Crouch Sr. breaks his son out, helps him to break out. In the movie, he is not aware... Yeah. He says, you are no son of mine. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, that was... His was his little, like, Hitler mustache. Yeah. It's such a weird <laughs> Yeah. I, I, th- I like that actress performance. It's definitely quirky. No, it's, yeah, um, it's quirky. But, and I know that there are a lot of quirky wizards out there, so that's fair. Yeah. So, we get to the final challenge. Which, again, what I have written in my notes is there's no sphinx in the maze, but it's not dramatic enough. I understand that. And they'd probably have to spend a lot of money... Uh constructing that on the computer but harry spends like no time in the maze he spends like no time like he figures it out immediately like he he doesn't really take any wrong turns you're talking about in the movie yeah yeah he spends no time in there he doesn't have to figure anything out he just has to go through a maze it's tough i was so used to the the movie scene that when i was reading it for this podcast i'm like oh wow this is actually different so in the book our characters come across a bunch of different creatures. So they come across a Dementor. Yep. Uh, we never figure out what happens to Flora. She just screams. She just disappears, yeah. And <laughs> in the movie, we see her just like get bodied by Victor Crumb. And then, yeah. and then, and then the bushes are just like... We eat you now. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to eat that. I'm going to eat the whole thing. And they, and they just duck her up and are like, okay, I guess Flora is... Dead again. <laughs> <laughs> but no, she she we see her later and she's with her little blanket again. And she's the first person who screams when she sees that someone's yeah. not come back alive. Well, because she's a woman, so Yeah, exactly. So she's emotional and she has no <laughs> Yeah. She has no capacity to feel anything else except for her big emotions. I agree with everything you said. <laughs> anyway. Then before the match, Dumbledore brings all the kids together in a huddle. And it was just like, oh, by the way, uh, you might lose your minds in there. Do the maze the best you can, but if you take a wrong turn, it could lead you down more long turns, and then you, like, you'll be crazy forever. All right, bye. <laughs> all right, bye. Uh, uh, and then the cannon goes off. A great thread. Oh, that's funny. And the movie that's funny. is, wh- who's the... Uh, Argus Filch. Filch. 
Yeah, with all the matches, all three matches, he blows the cannon early. That is <laughs> a great recurring joke in yeah. addition to the, that was not in the book. Yeah. Oh, there's there's a cute little moment with um, Mad-Eye, too, when he turns to Harry and he does a little finger point. Point That's, that's cute, too. I, yeah. I do actually like that. That's cute. Yeah. The movie... But it's over before it starts. Yeah, the movie <laughs> gets... already at the cup. Gets right to it. So yeah. are we to assume that Crumb is bewitched by Moody or by the maze? Yeah. That's not explained. I, it's not totally explained, but I interpret it as Mad-Eye either personally placed a curse over him or figured out how to do it from inside the maze. Um to put him under the Imperius curse so that he would take out the other two competitors so that Harry would yes. have the, the gotcha. only chance to win. Yes. That's how I interpret it. Yeah. yeah. It's not explained, but that's kind of like the whole thing. And I mean, that, again, that really goes to the whole thing about how fucking convoluted. Because that literally means that the Triwizard Tournament had to happen for... Harry to touch the port key. You know what they could have like, done? <laughs> is Mad-Eye Moody, uh, Barty Crouch as Mad-Eye Moody could have... Uh, taken a book off his desk, yeah, yeah. made it a port key, and just said, Harry, catch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he could have done that. I mean, I, no, don't, wait, don't get me wrong. Super cool that we got to see the tournament. Right. Super, uh, that's rad. Yeah. But the whole plot could have been just like, oh, Harry, I have a, look at this rock. And then he gets transported. Or he, he bewitches his broomstick or something that Harry touches all the time. Like, or his dick. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you can cut that <laughs> I'm keeping that in. Harry's <laughs> um, just like having a private moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he gets transported to the cemetery. Yeah. Sorry. So, can you compose yourself? We're recording a podcast. Um... <laughs> But here we get to the sequence that I think, for most people, pushes this movie to the top. To number one, if not number two or or number three, behind Azkaban and the last one. So I was just blown away as a kid when I watched this sequence. And every time I rewatch it, I'm brought back. I'm instantly transported to that time in the theater, being fully immersed, completely terrified out of my mind to be seeing the Dark Lord in person. He who must not be named. I never thought it would happen. Of course it would, but, you know. I never thought it would happen to me. (laughs) Right. So now we see him in... The way that he, like, the way that he takes shape and how he kind of, like, touches his body after he steps out of the cauldron is so scary. Yeah. It's so scary. And in the book, he has red eyes. Mm. The story goes, he originally had red eyes, but in editing, they uh, removed the eyes to to Ray Fine's natural um, eye color because it didn't look right for the part they thought his natural eyes were more you could see more the expressions yeah. from there well that's interesting because there's a thing about harry potter too about how in the books it's it's graded into readers that he has his mother's green eyes right but then harry didn't uh danny radcliffe try to wear the contact lenses and they right. irritated his eyes so they just ended up going with his natural blue mm-hmm yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that about the yeah. Rafe Fines. Yeah. Is it Rafe Fines or Rafe Fines? Rafe. Rafe? Okay. I've seen two separate interviews with him where the interviews either say Ray or Rafe, and he's responded to both. So. Oh, I guess I 
thought that it was Rafe. Uh, I, and I've seen, like, things where it's like, did you know that you're mispronouncing? Yeah. But a lot of people also think it's Ralph. I know it's right. not Ralph. <laughs> it's, it is not Ralph. <laughs> Which, even though, I mean, that's understandable. It's right. spelled Ralph. Yeah. So, Rafe. Well, anyway, I say Rafe. Maybe if, if he wants to reach out and correct us, Rafe, if you you're ha- listening. <laughs> our email is filmuslit. Our, our phones are, our phone lines are open. Yeah, filmuslit podcast at Gmail. Feel free to email us. Listeners, you can also... Email us too. Instagram at Film is Lit Pod. But yeah, great casting. This whole franchise has incredible casting. Pause on casting. I want to loop back at the end of the episode to talk about casting. So pause that thought because I want to talk about it, but I have a lot of other comments about it. Well, it's been an hour 20. We have not brought up our boy, our Pats, as Cedric Diggory. Well, we can talk about him now because we're talking about CD. His first feature film. This is really what makes me want to talk about the casting director because whoever found him really struck gold and then he did Twilight. <laughs> yeah, which um, we've talked about that before. But uh, but anyway, let's talk about Cedric. He well, does a great job. He really carries that role. He doesn't have a lot of screen time, right. but he takes advantage of what he has and I think that speaks to the kind of actor that Robbie Pattons is. <laughs> <laughs> Pattinson. Now, he's Batman. Oh, um, Pattinson, that's yeah, I, like that. I didn't come up I'm with sure it. You That's didn't. Twitter. I know. <laughs> but yeah, he he had a blast playing this role. Speaking of Twilight, uh, so Robert Pattinson has stated that he would much rather play Cedric Diggory again. Well, he's dead, so you can't. You fucking um, idiot. So did you not get that part? Yeah. Did you not get the part where he dies? <laughs> so he'd rather much play Cedric Diggory again uh, than play Edward Cullen again in the Twilight Saga, the role for which he is best known. So he hates Twilight so much that he keeps on bringing up Cedric Diggory to be like, that's what I want to return to. A tidbit that I love to tell people, and now I'm going to ruin the end for you, is that he didn't know how to hold his wand, and apparently Mike oh, Newell didn't, cute. never gave him any direction on it, and he was too nervous to ask because he was, uh, it was his first role. So if you notice, he's holding it like a gun with two hands and he has his fingers out like the finger guns with his ring finger and pinky in like back and what would be the, you know, the trigger. That's so cute. But it's it's cute because like it also kind of shows how scared Cedric is. Yes. And we already touched on this a little bit, but the stakes are so high when Voldemort kind of hisses kill the spare and immediately Cedric is dead. Right. I really adore movies and books and artwork that take a big swing like that because it can either feel not earned or it can be a little gratuitous. And I think the nature of the Avada Kedavra curse makes it just tragic. Like they earned the the death. Mm-hmm. They really did. Even as much as Cedric is not really in the movie, I think that's kind of what Amos's character is there for. Because I feel like in that way, Cedric doesn't have to be the dick that's always talking about himself. Yeah. And we don't get the history with him like Harry Potter, where we, we've we kind of heard, you know, he was on the Quidditch team mm-hmm. that beat Gryffindor and stuff like that. But I think that's what Amos is there for, to make him look like this very humble but very accomplished wizard. Yeah. So the fact that he looks like he can't hold the wand correctly and the fact that he, you really feel the death yeah. is a huge testament to how successful the movie and the book Right. Is. Like, I, I do have to give them props for that storyline. Yeah, the whole time I was waiting for 
them to resurrect Cedric. And the fact that it yeah. doesn't happen is, I think, very bold yeah. storytelling. And the whole scene in the graveyard is really effective. We get the whole potion part of like getting Harry's blood and the, the bone. And... <laughs> the, the hand of a servant and a little tiny cut from Harry Potter. I know. <laughs> another one of those things where you're like, the stakes are kind of cut off at the knees right there. You know cut off I mean? at the hand. Get off at the hand, yeah. <laughs> right, at, right at the wrist. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, it's a little silly. But um, that's such a great scene you know how uh Voldemort comes back it's really scary all of his followers come back and when he like rips off the face masks and they become crab goyle yeah and you Lucius yeah yeah wonderful moment it's really scary I think you even that like all of the people that he's talking about you haven't really seen except for Lucius Malfoy and he's such a scary presence in the first three books Mm -hmm. that the fact that you see him yeah. kneel and be like completely terrified, I think also goes to support the presence that Voldemort has and the control that he has over his followers. I love that scene. Yes. Really well done. And this movie has lacked a lot of the artistic flourishes that Quran gave um, yeah. in Azkaban. But in this sequence, Mike Newell utilizes Dutch angles. So that's when the camera is slightly askew, uh, which adds a sense of uneasiness. And when, you know, Her- you know Voldemort approaches Harry Potter, he's like, standing on the bones of my father. Like, I could not touch him, but I can touch you now. And it's brilliant how it's filmed. The book... There is an insane exposition yeah. dump, which was a record 40 minutes in my audiobook. Oof, that means it was probably about 50 pages. It is unacceptable. <laughs> That's... So he, Voldemort goes through, he tells his whole life story to all his Death Eaters. Uh, which Bertha they Jor- know. Yeah, Bertha yeah. Jorkins, name, whatever. Jorkins. <laughs> Bertha Jorts. Uh, cut, yeah, she, yeah, completely cut from the movie. And like, again, the theme of this episode is cut the fluff. The movie does that. It's a little explanation. Kind of Voldemort explains like, hey, where were where you guys? Where he's been, yes. too. Because no one knows that he was in Albania. Yes. No one knows how Pettigrew found him. No one really even knew that Pettigrew was, Pettigrew was alive. Yes. So, you know, that's acceptable. But the whole fucking life story, yeah. they already know. They've right. been with him for... Yeah. You know... 15 years absolutely absurd yeah. then we get the duel the the, the laser fight which right. very emotional really emotional we get to see harry's parents we get to see sirius and cedric who tells harry like bring my body back to my father that's fucking tragic. yeah i know and he's like he's like not his body isn't even cold on the ground yeah and we see him ask harry to bring his father back yeah tragic um, but really effective. I love that they create that smoke screen because that's really the only way that Harry is going to get out of there. Right. And then, oh, I love the callback that he used Asio Goblet. He doesn't like try to trudge to and run to get yeah. the Goblet. He's Asio Goblet because he practiced it for a fucking week to get it to mm-hmm. work for him in the Triwizard Tournament. And then he comes back and you know what one of my favorite pieces of composition in the movie is is the yep. I love that 
And the fact that it starts playing as soon as Harry comes back and he's like sobbing, that's a wonderful piece of... And then you hear the trumpets go... (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of like a little bit of much. But, But then, you know, Fleur screams and then... What really gets me is She when... screams in her little safety blanket yeah. that she had from the <laughs> last course, challenge. Yeah, because of course she just fucking fell on her face and started crying, I guess. I'm like, face. weren't you just in a bush? Like, <laughs> how did you get here? She's, she's traumatized, <laughs> um, as any woman would be. Where's Crumb? Where's Victor Crumb? Um, so then what really gets me, though, is Amos, he screams... My boy, and that actually my child. That makes me think of there will be blood. It, it really I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy. But it's 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 so gut wrenching. I was like, Jesus Christ! In the theater, when I'm like, what? This is deep stuff. It's and really I saw it with sad. my family. I'm like, oh is my god! Eyes dry? Yeah. It's... Yeah. It's 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 a lot, but. The so the movie has the almost impossible task of how do we end this after we just killed a kid and Voldemort's back and Voldemort's back <laughs> yeah so something that the movie does is they never mention the tournament after Harry Potter comes back so in the book they have a whole sequence where Harry Potter gets his winnings but it's very somber and and he gives it to Fred and George Fred, to start there yeah the whole business. thing which. Well, I like I like that part, but it is fluff. Yeah, is there even a mention? Yeah, there's no mention of the winnings in the movie now. In the movie at all, right? Which I think is fine because it's so traumatizing. Yeah. That, like realistically, would they have just like you know gone ahead and been like, well, here's your thousand galleons. Yeah. <laughs> no. So it is slightly. I mean, I think they do. They did the best they could, which is like. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are are laughing together, and they're having a fun time at the end of the year. But then they're like, "So everything's going to change now, huh?" Oh my god, that's such a dumb fucking line. I know. Well, I'm ar- I'm arguing. I mean, it, well, the, it's like, it's not necessarily great storytelling. I'm just saying, like, it's kind of like, how do you ostensibly this could have been a, a mini series? There's just so much going on in the book. So how do we... We got to wrap up here. It feels rushed, but I think they're in a rock and a hard place. We're like, you need to end on some uplifting level because we're not fully in the the war yet, which Mm -hmm. is what would be the remaining three books and four movies of the franchise. Harry Potter is still the victor. Yeah, no, you're making a good point. It's a little silly because it's just so reductionist. It's like... Uh, yeah. Well, and and it's also I think maybe the tone isn't quite hit correctly because I mean. Well, the gosh. line delivery. Okay, so. I know. I was just gonna say like. Believe it or Emma. Believe it or not, this is now the fifth time on this podcast where we will be talking about Emma Watson. We've only covered two Harry Potter books. This being the second one, so somehow she's shown up three other times. Little Women. Little Women, Perks of Being a Wallflower, and then we Perks. talked about her at another episode. I think the Dune episode, when we were talking about casting or something like that. But I know this is the fifth time. She hasn't become the competent Elsa actor. I still have some problems with her, but... It's not going to work! <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, Daniel Radcliffe, who we said wasn't the best in The Prisoner of Azkaban, I think he steps it up here. Yeah, he's good. There's there's a cringe moment where he goes he gags at Hagrid and 
Madame Maxine when they're like dating. <laughs> that's something like, else that's cut out. So in the book, Hagrid calls Madame Maxine a half giant and yeah, reveals that is. he's a half giant, which is like apparently in this universe, giants killed a lot of people. So like no one likes giants, but Hagrid's no one knew that Hagrid was a half giant, but Hagrid's nine feet yeah. tall <laughs> and 500 pounds but like how did it's what I, I was just bringing that up yeah because there's like a gagging moment where i'm just like come on they're not even kissing they're just flirting and here he's like, here he's like <laughs> and i'm like okay but anyway yeah did radcliffe's competent i think rupert grant probably had a tough job because ron's just a piece of shit yeah and he had to play a piece of shit so especially during the dance when uh, his date was like want to dance yeah. and he's like no and you're like damn yeah. dude damn <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, are we are we getting into casting? Are we done with the Yeah, let's okay. let's do casting and then fly out of here. Yeah, so in my notes I have who cast Cedric? Who is the casting director? Can you pull up their name real quick? Two people, Mary Selway and Fiona Weir. Inspired other than obviously Michael Gammon. Um, he was already cast though. Oh, okay. Then they did a great job. Yeah. Um I was going to say so the decision to change Flitwick into this younger nothing character. Who's he? Professor Flitwick is the charms professor. Oh, okay. Played by Warwick Davis oh. of Star Wars and Labyrinth fame. So the interesting thing is that he played Flitwick in every preceding movie that he pops up in. But they make him into a very old, like, white-haired, kind of goblin-esque-looking person. Okay. Um, and actually, Warwick Davis played the voice of Grip Hook, which is kind of cool. But he doesn't play him physically. Gotcha. Um, Who's Grip Hook? He's a later character. He's a goblin that works at... Gringotts? Gringotts, yeah. I gotcha, gotcha. So... Mike Newell decided to completely not change the actor, but change the look of the character for no explained reason. Okay. And so he becomes this like suit wearing professor instead of instead of a robe wearing professor. It's a very different taste, but the actor stayed the same, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I wanted to point out because I didn't actually know that it was the same actor. <laughs> yeah. Because um, they're both both portrayals are completely covered in makeup and prosthetics. So you really right. can't tell that it's Warwick Davis. But I thought it was kind of fun to, sh to see the... And I guess maybe that talks to... That speaks to the idea that he wanted the the muggle world... Like, it, for it to be kind of grounded more than in the wizarding world, where people wear, like, robes and spectacles, and instead they wear more mm -hmm. muggle clothing, I guess. I don't know. I just thought it was kind of cool to, to point out. And then Rita Skeeter... Oh. We haven't touched on, and that's a fantastic character, and the actor who plays her just chews on every freaking line, and she is so amazing. I love her. Rita Skeeter, as yeah. Jim Dale would say. Yeah. Miranda Richardson, you deserve an Oscar. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. There's a whole other bit in the book where she is turning into a beetle or whatever a dingus what what's it called oh anna marchis oh, okay <laughs> dingus. <laughs> dingus. um where she's, she's figuring into, like, out a dung beetle kind of yeah which like i know that the author is doing a whole bit on like journalism i can't imagine a journalist reading the book and being like wow this is they she really respects my profession yeah I but mean, it's, it's a fun 
character in it's, the world. Right. And Miranda Richardson just nails the yeah. the tone. And, and the... wisely only in a few scenes, unlike the book. Um, yeah. Which yeah. just goes on forever. And then everyone else. <laughs> honestly, all of the background characters in this, even Neville, just really good casting. I know that the casting directors didn't didn't do Neville, but I don't. Yeah. I can't think of any new characters other than like Cedric, Rita, the, the Crouches, the Crouches, Igor Karkarov, and honestly, I think Madame Maxine does a great job. I think that actor does a great job with the role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fleur was literally given one line, and it was a scream. So yeah. that that. Role was wasted on Cornelius Fudge. He's an absolute oh, dingus. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's always an idiot in the books too. Yeah, he's always which is a big reason why Or the Phoenix is so lame because the whole oh book he's God. just like Voldemort's not back, and I'm like literally in the last book that was a plot point. So yeah. like let's get over this. We're not talking about Order of the Phoenix. We're talking about Goblet of Fire, which we are wrapping up. So final rating out of four stars for the book. Oh, I forgot to read it because it's been so long since we recorded the podcast. It's hard to rate the books because they're just Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, but if I had to compare it to like my favorite books, which are like one, three, and seven, I would rank it fourth. So okay. I don't know if that tells you anything. So maybe three stars. <laughs> All right. Um, movie. It's fun, and it does a great job of adapting the movie. Yeah. The book. Yes. So agreed. enough cringe moments to give it anything under a 3.5 yeah i'm i'm with you there too i'll do my movie rating first four years i'm like four four to four stars and i think that comes from my first initial viewing yeah so i'll always have that first time i'll always have those memories but there are some cracks so 3.5 out of four and i think i'm being a little generous with that to be honest the book like I said, it's tough since I've seen the movie so many times and I was judging it against that. But I do think it is overstuffed, very boring in parts, took me a while. So I'll give credit where credit's due, great concept, continue. It adds the stakes for the rest of the franchise too by bringing Voldemort back. So I'll do um, two out of four for that, that book. That's totally fair. I'd probably give it a two if I read it again. And... Cool. Yeah. All right. Our question of the week. That's right. We're stealing this from uh, secondhand film critics uh, who we're going to have on the pod this season. Oh, I read the novella yes. that we're going to cover with yes. them, but it's so good. Yeah. So our question of the week is what is your favorite Harry Potter book and movie and why? <laughs> What's your favorite actor who plays Harry Potter? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I'm glad you clarified. Right. Yeah, book and movie and why. That can be two different answers, too. But it better not be number five. <laughs> yes. Um, if it is, unsubscribe. We will see you next week for Unfollow. our coverage on Spiderhead, the new Netflix Ooh. film, which was adapted from the George Saunders short story, Escape from Spiderhead, which came out in The New Yorker. So, so prepare. Prepare for that. That's going to be a doozy. We have not seen the movie yet as of this recording. Haven't looked up any reviews, so we are going in fresh. All right, team. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.